Welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of Undercover. I'm Matt Parnell. Today's episode is an extra long one filled with deep, informative stories of the pandemic and the small and large-scale impact it's having on our planet. We've split the episode into two parts, so grab a drink, sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy. Once again, lockdown has thrown us all back into our homes, forcing us to spend time with the other inhabitants residing there. For many of us, this means more quality time with family, just in case previous lockdowns weren't enough. Unable to leave our homes, family members have had an increased significance in our social lives. In some ways, lockdown has given us an appreciation for the support families can give in times of uncertainty. Family can come in many different shapes and forms and can mean something different for all of us, whether it be biological family, close friends, work colleagues, or even roommates. No matter what family is for you, these connections create a level of certainty and reliability during an uncertain time. Lots of us have found that COVID lockdowns have increased family contact, though this wasn't the case for everyone. Today in the episode, we'll be hearing stories from families looking at some of the negative impacts COVID-19 has had on them. There are currently over 36,000 Australians stranded overseas, and many have been separated from their families for over a year due to COVID-19 border closures. Of course, it would be extremely difficult for any family stuck in this situation, but what if you also found that one of your loved ones had been diagnosed with cancer and you were stuck halfway across the world, unable to be by their side? For the past year, this has been Anna and her son Alex's reality. Molly McGuinness has more. Two months ago, I had no idea that I would be standing here in Panama with a brand new touring bike. But as you're probably Alex aware, Denham, or Ali as he's more commonly known, loves bike riding. He blogs about it, he makes YouTube videos about it, and he also shares his cycling adventures with over 50,000 followers on Instagram. In December of 2017, he left his Melbourne home and set off to South America with the intention of cycling from the bottom of Argentina up to Alaska. The bike tour was supposed to take three years, which meant he would have been back home in December of 2020. But in March of last year, while Ali was in Mexico, COVID-19 had turned into a full-blown pandemic. Just months later, he found out that his mother had been diagnosed with cancer. I, I found out that the world was kind of closing and country borders were closing and it was going to be hard to get anywhere in about mid-March. And my mum got diagnosed, I think, later in May. So there was about a two-month difference. As soon as he found out the news, he immediately started to plan a way to get home. Originally, I was just looking for flights. Um, so I was finding flights that were reasonably priced, but then the governments were like talking about reducing the numbers of people who were going to be able to get onto these flights. And then I was reading stories about people who had already booked multiple flights and weren't able to get onto any of them. So I, I spent about a month just looking at flights and like kind of observing things because it's like a bit of a mission to pack up your whole life and jump on a plane and go to the other side of the world. But I wanted to make sure that it was going to be like quick and easy as possible. But like many Australians, he soon realised it wasn't going to be as quick and easy as he had hoped. Things like paying for quarantine were coming up and there was like you know, this state is going to start charging 4000 this state's going to charge 5000 So, like, there was a really big money component to it. And then flight prices just skyrocketed. Like, after probably June, the cost of flights would have been three, four, five times as much. 
as they were in like March, April, May. After finally booking a flight, a few days before he was set to return home, it got cancelled. He booked two more flights, but only got the same disappointing news. By the time it was October or November, the airline told me that they don't have any flights until March or April next year. Ali's mum, Anna, last saw her son last year, after her and her husband went on a trip to visit him in Mexico. They returned to Australia just as the pandemic started to take off. So that was mid-February and yeah. we actually came back on the 1st of March. It was really great and then we flew back and then, then the virus just hit and Alex knew he was stuck. She says going through her cancer treatment while Ali was stuck overseas was challenging. The treatment was such that it was all-consuming, you know, appointments and treatment and appointments and treatment and, um, yeah, that, that as well as trying to give Alex updates on what's going on. Um, but, you know, the saving grace was FaceTime and being able to talk yeah. to him and seeing how he was feeling himself, you know, because he was in limbo. With the coronavirus still raging on in many parts of the world and no end in sight to the increasing cost of plane tickets and is uncertain about when she's ever going to see her son again. You know, when, when he found, when I, we told him that I had cancer mm. and that it was very serious, um, he wanted to come home. So he tried to get on flights, but you know, he kept on getting knocked off the flights all the time. He's been trying and trying and now he's basically given up. I don't know when my son is going to come back to Australia. When asked if she thought the government had done enough to help stranded Australians, Anna's answer was pretty clear. No, not at all. You know, as someone else in the age said, you know, they've got all of these um, planes that belong to Australia, these carrier planes, a bit part of the Navy or the Army. You know, they could have done something like that, you know? Yeah, absolutely not, no. Ali also feels the same way. Super frustrating when you know that the government can easily scale up how many people they quarantine or they can change the rules around how many flights are allowed into the country or they can send repatriation flights out to pick people up or they can subsidise the cost of business class tickets or like, you know, there's just 10 or 20 different ways that they could have made the process easier for people stuck overseas. Ali says it was only recently that the government actually got in contact with him. But by this point, he had given up. Thankfully, however, his mother has gone into remission. I'm not actively trying to get home anymore. And I'll resume trying to get home if my mum's cancer comes back. The uncertainty was driving me absolutely crazy. So for now, Ellie and his mother try to keep in touch as much as they can, often over FaceTime. Even still, Anna can't wait to see her son in person again. What is the first thing you're going to do when you see Alex in person again? Wow. <laughs> you, always, you always give them a big hug, you know? That's what you always do. Yeah. Thanks for that, Molly. 
Reporter Nick Whiting began an investigation into how families were perpetuating vaccine misinformation at a niche anti-mask rally in Melbourne. What he ended up finding was a deep dive into a passionate, large movement that used religion to defend their anti-science beliefs. Nick Whiting reports. You'll have to excuse me if any of the clips from the Melbourne edition of the Worldwide Rally for Freedom are hard to hear. The organisers decided to hold it a few metres from both one of the busiest train stations in the country and two helipads. Naturally, when noise started to interfere with their speeches, the blame was reversed and blown entirely out of proportion. What you see there is currently an assault on freedom, and it's coming from all angles. This is a spiritual, psychological, and physical war, and it's getting to the point where they wish to inject us all with unknown substances. I wasn't expecting a big turnout for this rally. Maybe a dozen or so people quietly standing around and chatting about their scepticism towards vaccines and masks. I was sent to hopefully interview a few strangers about how their values affected their family life. Maybe it caused a rift, maybe it united them. Uh, my children don't agree with me, so I'm not sure. I feel like they've been brainwashed by the media. What I instead found was a gathering of well over 100 people of all ages, brandishing signs that condemned Bill Gates for putting microchips in their vaccines, calls from the crowd that blamed Freemasons for being the puppeteer behind the Orwellian treatment of citizens during lockdown. But the question is, is COVID a scam? How is it that such a mass lie was able to propagate over the globe and take so much control? How is it they were able to get their mitts in every single government institution, every single authoritarian place you can think of? How? Amp transphobia lumped into multiple speeches for good measure. Okay, when the governments go around and say, you know, we're gonna we're gonna transition children to males and the females, females to males, you know what? You're not really my government anymore. Because you, when you start saying things like that, Needless to say, it was much more intense than I anticipated. Jesus first showed us this act of love when he died on the cross for our sins to give us spiritual freedom. The Anzacs and our forefathers, they fought and died so that we can have the freedom that we enjoy today. And now it is our duty that we must also be ready to make this sacrifice, not just for our freedom, not just for our children's freedoms, but for the future of humanity. life to have their way and play out this wicked demonic agenda and so are you ready and willing to die on your feet to defend humanity between the multiple speeches overall scattershot and who they were blaming for the coronavirus and why i found that the main thing driving this hardcore rejection of science was a belief in christianity a Pew Research Center survey conducted in the U.S. in February of this year found that white evangelicals were to be the religious group least likely to say that they'd be vaccinated against the coronavirus. Nearly 45% said they would not get the COVID-19 shot, compared with 30% of the general population. Some evangelicals have even linked coronavirus vaccinations to the mark of the beast, a symbol of submission to the Antichrist found in biblical prophecies such as Revelation 13:18. This notion was even present in the rally that I attended. The moment I was arrested, I was reading from Revelation 13, 16. I'm not going to read it again because I'll probably get arrested. 
But what I was trying to do, I was trying to associate the fact that we're heading towards a controlled society where we're going to be tracked, marked and traced with a microchip or some type of digital identification that's monitored by the government. And it was written 2,000 years ago in scripture. And I'm not going to say the verse, but you know which verse I'm talking about. But it said you won't buy, sell, whether you're free or bond, if you don't bear that mark. Now, who knows what that mark is? All I know is it's control. Allow me to Sunday school you a little bit by reading a segment of Revelations verbatim. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to breathe the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Given the symbolic nature of the Bible as a whole, the reference to being marked on the forehead or hand is likely not something to be seen literally. One of the reasons that Revelations is often considered one of the most confusing passages of the Bible is it's frequently trained to be seen as a book about the future, when in fact it is primarily a book about the past. There is a well-known practice in the ancient world called gematria, in which letters are assigned numerical values. This allows authors to refer to individuals by using the number of their name, rather than their actual name. And biblical scholars have long noted that in Hebrew characters, the numerical value of Nero's formal title, Caesar Nero, is 666. Caesar Nero refers to the fifth emperor of ancient Rome, who was seen as the Antichrist by contemporary Christians. This gross misinterpretation of the Bible is not the first of its kind, nor will it be the last. Religion has long been used to excuse outrageous trains of thought, the misappropriation of historical figures was also seldom seen at the rally, with quotes from JFK. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And Winston Churchill. A great man once said, this is only the beginning of the reckoning. This is only the first sip, the first taste of a bitter cup. Being used to justify their stance. And one final brazen comparison for their false sense of monolithic self-importance. One thing you don't understand, or you might not realise yet, is that we are the Anzacs of today, fighting for freedom! Nick Whiting with that story. The Victorian lockdown made a lot of people living with cancer feel more vulnerable and isolated. Chloe Karras interviews a cancer patient and speaks to one of Canteen Australia's psychosocial clinicians. Last year, at the height of the COVID outbreak, restrictions brought in some of the toughest times for Victorians. Michael Arculus underwent surgery last year after relapsing again from brain cancer. I spoke to him about his experience. Uh, my name's Michael, I'm 23 years old. Um, I was diagnosed with holocytic astrocytoma of the brain stem when I was five years old. Polycytric astrocytoma is a glial cell tumour which makes up the brain. So polycytic astrocytoma is a, um, is a brain tumour that sits on your brain stem or mine's on my brain stem and usually it's non-cancerous but in my case it's 
kind of cancerous it's kind of not it's sits in between because it doesn't spread but it's like can't stop it growing it's like a it doesn't react to usually doesn't react to treatment surgery will only work for a, a, a small amount of time before it grows back and just continuously grows back nothing they can really do that's why i'm on palliative care at the moment michael's tumor is an incurable cancerous benign tumor he has required chemotherapy radiation and surgeries to remove the tumor since he was young 2020 september 2020 i was i relapsed i had a resection of my of my brain tumor they got half of it out and then i underwent chemotherapy this was Michael's fifth relapse of cancer. During Victoria's lockdown, people weren't allowed to visit family in hospital. This is what Michael and his family found the hardest. It wasn't, I wasn't scared of COVID. I felt more vulnerable because I was, as a cancer patient in hospital, during COVID, you can't see your family. I was all alone in hospital during cancer treatment and during surgery and unable to see anybody and it was depressing and I was caused me to have a lot of stress. I had surgery and I didn't have anyone there when I came out. It was just the doctors and the nurses. I just wanted to see my, see my parents after surgery, but that wasn't possible because of the COVID restrictions in Victoria. It made things a lot, a lot harder. Michael was in hospital for two months. He felt worried, stressed and anxious about going into surgery, unsure if he'll come out as the same person. Not having his parents there in person, just over the phone, heightened his worries. He told me he was used to wearing a mask and so were the people around him before COVID. This is something they were used to because of his cancer. Before his relapse, his parents weren't as careful with COVID. When I got sick and came home, they were like, and on chemo, they became a lot more strict as you have to clean your hands, you have to wear a mask around Michael, be sure you don't go near him. It became a lot more strict since my immune system was very low. Michael found it hard not having human contact from the people he's used to seeing and not having the usual support network. Support services were running online, which he couldn't join due to the poor network connection in the hospital. Hannah Sobshak is from Canton, Australia, an organisation who helps young people living with cancer. I spoke to her on the effects of the COVID outbreak had on young people living with cancer. My name's Hannah and I'm the area manager for the Newcastle region. Part of my area manager role, I'm the psychosocial clinician, which is a social worker and I look after the therapeutic needs and support uh, young people who are affected by cancer. Canteen found a lot of young people during COVID lockdowns were in high distress needs. Young people already have the fear and uncertainty of their parent, sibling or themselves having cancer. But the thought of contracting COVID and having it in the community heightened the stress and anxiety. I suppose though on the flip side of that, we've had young people and families who have always isolated because of their cancer experience and so now they weren't alone in isolating. Actually we found that our young people ended up being experts in this isolation period. So we found that they were actually coping a lot better than the rest of the community in terms of knowing how to isolate and the risks the COVID could pose to themselves and their health. Young people living with cancer were pulled out of school earlier than the rest of the community. Living with cancer already feels isolated, but during COVID lockdown, isolation was more stressful on young people. The young people know 
what isolation feels like, but there was this added layer of isolation. And not only there was an added layer, it was a continuing length of time that they were isolated for that really played a significant impact on their mental health, um, whether they were a young person who had cancer themselves or if a parent had cancer. While cancer and COVID had a significant impact on young people's mental health, like Michael and his family during lockdown, there is hope found services out there helping young people living with cancer in our community. Thanks, Chloe. Reporter Zara Ahmad has been researching child COVID vaccinations and how it might impact childcare services in Australia. Zara has more. As Australians continue to get the jab, the younger generation are yet to be given the green light. With all the uncertainty around the vaccine, some parents may be hesitant to vaccinate their children. The US has already approved the vaccination of children with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, but we are yet to see the response from parents who have the right to choose whether to vaccinate their children or not. In Australia, while the vaccination isn't mandatory, a national survey reported that 73% of Australians were willing to get the jab for work, travel and study. So if the vaccine were to be made mandatory, how would the government apply this to the younger demographic? While other vaccines aren't mandatory, in the past children have been barred from kindergartens and childcare centres for not being fully immunised. Nationwide, children have had to meet these requirements since 1998 in order to be eligible for family tax benefits or childcare assistance payments. In 2016, the No Jab No Play policy was introduced in various states to boost vaccination rates. The legislation required parents to fully immunise their children in order to be eligible for childcare. However, while the rates went up slightly, A 2020 study found that the legislation had little impact on parents opposed to vaccination science. Anti-vax parents were moving away from the mainstream childcare, creating their own services to avoid the policy requirements. On the Sunshine Coast, former Senate candidate Alona Lan formed a communal hub called Natural Immunity Community to facilitate parents who were unable to access childcare and welfare benefits as a result of the legislation. I talked to RMIT Associate Professor in Microbiology, Tegrid Istvan, about the importance of getting a COVID jab. Children within childcare centres or even within a family um, they tend to play with things even in childcare centers or primary schools, kindergartens. They play very close to each other. They don't wash their hands. They touch everything. And th- those are children. And and with this kind of, of um, activity, uh, they are more, um, they are spreaders of viruses in general. And usually adults, they get viruses and infection from their children when they go to, to childcare. And this will be the same as for COVID. Tagrid emphasised that childcare centres are close contact environments, making virus containment difficult. Unlike in workplaces, children cannot social distance, nor can they be expected to take all the appropriate measures required of most places of work, such as wearing masks and constant sanitising and disinfecting. If, for example, an adult within the childcare center is infected or is um, without symptoms or with symptoms, um, then children will be at risk. And the risk is higher because they will transmit it to each other quickly, but then they will go home and they will give it to their parents 
and to the family at home. So they are uh, kind of uh, spreaders of viruses and most likely they wouldn't show symptoms. Even so, the nature of the pandemic has brought significant publicity to the COVID vaccines. With the attention comes scrutiny and doubt. There is a hesitation even within adults from vaccination with the, um, the reported cases of blood clotting, for example, with AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, and with other side effects even from other vaccines as well, not as the clotting, but side effects of fever, headaches, and so on. For now, and because the cases here in Australia are so low, the parents would not think of the importance of vaccinating their children and also because of the side effects and the possible situation of complication as well from some of the vaccines that will make people's, uh, the parents hesitant. Tagrid explains that while there are anti-vaxxers who will not immunize their children, there are many parents whose fears are well within reason. Not many reports or studies have been done on vaccination in children as well. Not any study to, to explain the efficacy of the vaccine in children, the side effects, there's nothing. Until there are a lot of more information and reports and studies on how the vaccine will work on children and the side effects, parents will still be hesitant. Thank you, Zara, for the story. It's been over a year and a half since the virus was first discovered. Information on COVID-19 is everywhere, on the news, on social media, on government websites and even video games. This information has helped us stay safe and updated, but inevitably there have also been some downsides. In part two of this episode, we'll be looking at the vulnerable members of the community that have fallen through the gaps in the information available. We'll also be exploring whether the media's coverage of blood clots related to the AstraZeneca vaccine have affected Australia's fight against coronavirus and compare our response to the Czech Republic in Europe. Then, we look to those spreading information in a less traditional way. Video games. Without further ado, on to our first story. The government has said that vaccinations are available for everyone in Australia, but this information hasn't actually reached everyone. Some refugees and those on bridging visas have fallen through the gap, unsure whether they are eligible to receive the vaccine and what the process will be like for them. Yusuf Saudi investigates. There has been a lack of clarity for refugees trying to get the vaccine, causing some to be overlooked in the process. For Anhar al-Shemeri, the process of receiving a COVID vaccine has been uncertain. Amhar is on a bridging visa from Yemen and is awaiting results for refugee status. Being on a bridging visa in the times of a pandemic makes you live with this immense uncertainty about your life. You do not know where you're going to be in a month. Anhar is immunocompromised, so she falls under the Phase 1B vaccination group. Yet until recently, she didn't know she could get the vaccine. I haven't been able to get my vaccine yet because I'm mainly confused, honestly. The communication has been very lacking in the sense that people in my situation have not been addressed quite clearly. Anhar has neutropenia, a condition that has left her with low levels of white blood cells, 
This makes it harder for her to fight diseases like COVID-19. But now she feels excluded from the government's information on the COVID vaccine and says it could be better. I don't know, when I go to the vaccine clinic, what will they ask of me? What kind of paperwork will they, will they demand? Because again, I'm not sure where I stand and where I am placed in this process. And that's greatly due to the lack of communication or clarity on the government's end. Hopefully that has to get better. Undercover has reached out to the Department of Health and they've said that everyone in Australia will be able to receive the vaccine for free. This includes those from temporary visas, refugees, asylum seekers and those in detention centres. But this has still been unclear for Anhar al-Shemeri. Even though it does say it's free for everyone, but are we part of the everyone? Because one, we're not on a visa, we're on a bridging visa. And two, people like me in particular are not in a bridging visa are not in any regular bridging visa. We're in a bridging visa to get a refugee visa. So that's even more, um, more tough for us. This uncertainty, along with Amhar seeing if she'll be granted refugee status, has taken a toll on her mental health. Personally, I just feel invaluable. It got to a point where I just don't feel sad. I actually, I actually do not care. And that is very scary because I should care about my health. I should care about the vaccine. But it just feels like I'm not part of the process. Overcrowding, illness, boredom and hopelessness in a refugee camp. Refugees to the refugee camp described as the worst on the planet. On refugees, asylum seekers. So why are vaccinating refugees important? Claire Lottonen is the co-convener for the University of Melbourne's Academics for Refugees and says that refugees and asylum seekers can be particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. They're in um, living in difficult circumstances. Many of them have um, prior health conditions, including sort of heart disease, asthma, um, other conditions, diabetes. So they're one of the, the, the more high-risk groups. If we're going to look at sort of people like those in aged care and those working in the health system as high-risk, refugees would certainly fall into that category as well. There has been criticism of the current approach of the COVID vaccine rollout in Australia. Catherine Curcio is the immunisation coordinator for the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre and helps with answering questions and concerns for refugees and the COVID vaccine. We've done the course, we know what the information is um, and it's changing quite frequently so we make sure we stay up to date as much as we can so we can answer anyone's questions and concerns. But in this process, Ms Curcio says there is a lack of information targeting refugees and there could be more done about it. In relation specifically to people seeking asylum and refugees, I, I haven't come across much that's specific to them as a group. Um, rather than just say, you know, translate into a specific language, that would probably be a, a good place to start is to provide some, some further materials specific to people with lived experience. The Victorian Department of Health has been reached out for questions regarding COVID-19 vaccines, but did not respond. People like Anhar Al-Shamari are just one example of COVID information not getting to those who currently need it. Anhar says there should be simpler language used so people like her can clearly understand that they can receive the vaccine. Use simple language that directly says 
any visa holder, including bridging visas, including refugees, are allowed or eligible to get this vaccine. In the meantime, all Anhar hopes is to get her vaccine soon and those also in a situation to receive it too. I hope to see that I am safe health-wise in the sense that I'm vaccinated. I hope that people with special visa circumstance are aware of what needs to happen around them. Ultimately, that's all I want is for all of us to heal from this pandemic. That was Yusuf Saudi with the story. While there are those desperate to receive the vaccine, there is also a lot of reluctance when it comes to getting the jab. Despite the vaccine now being made available to people over 40, Australia is still falling behind. Riley Barber looks at the role the media has played in its reportage of the AstraZeneca vaccine and related blood clot cases and the impact on vaccine hesitancy this has had among Australians. As calls for an official ad campaign promoting the vaccine increase, many Australians are still reluctant to get the jab. And with Victoria having experienced its fourth lockdown after yet another outbreak, it is becoming more apparent the need for Australians to be fully vaccinated. So why are Aussies hesitating? It's a complicated question with an even more complicated answer. One of the contributing factors? The media. Three more cases of blood clots have been linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine. An 18-year-old health worker has developed blood clots after getting her COVID vaccine. Fresh vaccine concerns too with three more blood clot cases. Since the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine, the media has been reporting each blood clot case as it's their job to. But there are concerns that this might be contributing to Australians' fear of the vaccine. Yeah, that the risk is is um, is there, but it is also in every time we talk about it, it increases um, vaccine hesitancy exponentially. And at the end of the day, as all not being vaccinated is more of a risk than the blood clots. Bob Kerry Grieve lives in Belan with his wife and two sons. In the past, he's suffered two strokes from a hole in his heart and bowel cancer. Safe to say he's no stranger to blood clots. But when it comes to receiving the vaccine, Bob says he's willing to wait, as he himself has some minor reservations. Well, I'm, I'm happy to, to have the vaccine, but, you know, it's okay that we're going to put this off a little bit. Despite his own hesitation, Bob is sympathetic to the reportage of the blood clots. I kind of feel sorry, in a sense, for a lot of journalists because there's very little way of reporting this without it sounding, um, without over-dramatising it. But he is concerned that the media is not contextualising the blood clots enough, which is making them seem worse than they actually are. And he's not the only one. Anna Brazier lives in the inner western suburbs of Melbourne. She and her husband have already been vaccinated, something they were more than happy to do once the vaccine was made available to them. But she's concerned with how the media has been reporting the blood clot cases. So before we were due to get the vaccine here in Australia, we were looking forward to and thinking this is a really good thing that's going to happen. And once that little bit of news came out about this, you know, the possible side effects of clotting and some people had had those side effects, it just, the whole narrative just turned and focused on the negative, which really annoyed me because I sort of thought the positives far outweigh those negatives. Anna, the looming possibility of repeating last year far outweighs any concerns she has about the vaccine. It's just incredible to think that people 
are sort of stalling and I can understand why because they're hearing the negative news but I don't know I feel like they're not aware really of how easily we can go back to what it was. But as much as this is a concern for ordinary Australians like Bob and Anna, the impact of media reportage on vaccine hesitancy is particularly dangerous for Australia's disadvantaged communities. A recent study by the Australian National University found that women, people who speak a language other than English at home, and those who live in disadvantaged areas and outside capital cities are more likely to hesitate when it comes to getting the jab. ABC journalist Talia Aulatia says that the media needs to keep these groups in mind when they are reporting and focusing on making updates as accessible and simple as possible. So you have these scary medical terms and you just add everything together and, of course, people are afraid. Like, people in Australia who understand everything, who, like, watch all the press conferences, they're still afraid and asking questions. So if you remove any of those barriers to, like, you know, the privilege that we have of going, oh, this information is tailored for me, then that just is compounding the fear. According to the Department of Health, the blood clots we're seeing from the AstraZeneca vaccine are actually quite rare. They may occur in four to six people in every million, which is a lower rate than the natural risk of blood clots in people who haven't received the vaccine. Bob, Anna and Talia all pointed out that there is a higher risk of blood clots with taking the contraceptive pill. And that's where I think like journalism is really important is to help people put that into perspective is like yes this is the information that's out there yes that information is you know true and it's important but what's more important is getting a jab in your arm like that's going to help you at the end of the day and you know of course that doesn't negate that that risk is still out there it's just an informed risk. And if you're informing people, then they can feel better to go, okay, here's the way riskier stuff that I do every single day and that I am fine with. Talia also points out that when it comes to vaccine reportage, no media organisation or publication works in a vacuum. And it is very easy for an oversaturation of news to compound the fear of Australians. She says that not only is it about contextualising the information that is being reported, but also about recognising the privileged position which the media is in. So looking at it from different angles, I think, is very helpful. And just acknowledging that, you know, especially in the Australian media, that we are very, like, white and privileged. <laughs> and just recognising that our experience is not necessarily every audience member's experience as well. And that, you know, knowing that then can inform better reporting and better journalism, because instead of going, hey, here's a message for all of Australia, you could just be like, here is a message for the Indigenous community, which will still have information that the rest of Australia can take on, but is more tailored to the people who are the most vulnerable. Vaccine hesitancy among Australians cannot solely be put down to media reportage. There is a variety of factors that account for their reluctance towards receiving the jab. That being said, the media does play a role in this dilemma, and there should be some acknowledgement of their responsibility to present Australians with information that is balanced and accurate. Most of the times it's just recognise that there is a gap there. <laughs> it's very easy in um, newsrooms to get very tunnel visioned into this is, okay, the story is AstraZeneca blood clots, so what are the angles around AstraZeneca blood clots? The media can play an active role in helping fight vaccine hesitancy rather than contribute to it. 
As long as media reportage prioritises delivering factual information that everyone can understand, it can help fill that gap amongst Australians. That was Riley Barber on vaccine hesitancy in Australia. Let's now look at how Australia's COVID response compares to elsewhere in the world. In March this year, the Czech Republic went from being one of the safest countries in the world to being one of the worst hit by coronavirus cases. Claudia Forsberg looks into how Australia's vaccine rollout program holds up against the Czech Republic's. So often we hear stories from other countries like the US and India and how they are with surviving the coronavirus pandemic. I decided to sit down with some people from the little country who they have not heard it that much to see whether they are doing better or worse than Australia. This is Eva Pfeiffer. I am really well, thank you. How are you? She's a long way from her birthplace in the Republic. So it will be almost 13 years, which is hard to believe it. I am from the Moravia region, which is kind of a countryside of the Czech Republic. All we know is Czechoslovakia, this landlocked country with a population of around 10 million, is lightheaded in Eastern Europe. At the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Czech Republic was one of the few European countries safely avoiding a severe wave of cases. And almost a year and a half later, Czech is only now emerging from its fourth wave, and in March this year, secure the spot as one of the worst hit countries in terms of its case rate. At the time of reporting, Czech has reached over 1 million cases and 30,000 deaths. Hannah Flanderator, the consulate general in the Czech consulate based in Sydney, says that many Czechs struggled during the COVID lockdown. Not on the other side, it has affected um, a lot of business people, a lot of business. The kids haven't been to school for quite a long time. So sometimes it is, of course, negative because it has been going on for too long. That being said, we have a lot to learn from the Czech Republic. Despite its network case numbers and devastating death toll, the Czech government still managed to get almost 25% of its population fully vaccinated and 40% is now just one dose. Started in uh, March of this year, um, we have about 40% vaccinated right now, and the program is similar to all the other programs. So first, we were vaccinating the um, uh, frontline staff, um, medical staff, and the cri cri critical infrastructure people. Uh, then we started with the most vulnerable old ones and the, the, the people with diseases. And now uh, they are eligible uh, people 40 years. And then the at the beginning, people were maybe a bit perplexed, but yeah. now most of them are vaccinated. And, and in that sense, the government stepped in very quickly. I think that yeah. everybody kind of got shaken enough having yeah. being sick or having a family member sick. And, um, and then, yeah, seems like everybody I know is vaccinated now. Yeah, and high numbers of vaccines now. And, and also, you know, people want to 
have the economy back after a year of lockdown. So I think they are very positive to get vaccinated and and you know keep traveling and keep having their businesses. And, so is and that is area and the worst to to be right now um not as bad as India and other countries, but yeah. really bad and um I think now right now they kind of getting out of lockdown after a year, and so yeah, all my friends and family already had covid unfortunately. And um, most of them now are vaccinated, and um, yeah, it's it's been probably very difficult. I struggle with the fact that you know it's been possible for me to travel there if need be. Yeah, uh, but um, it still seems confident that the government has done enough to vaccinate the population. Hannah Flynn Arena also says that the well, I have to say that we have been through COVID now more than a year. So the um, so the mood of the of the people in the Czech Republic in general, there there are high hopes um, because we have just started vaccinations and the numbers are getting better and better. <laughs> Historically, uh, on a very good level, and that is that is why it helped us also to face um, all the COVID challenges. Perhaps this means that most of these countries are fully equipped in the fight against COVID-19. Compared to those two, I think Australia is handling it really well. That was Claudia Forsberg with the story. With the loads of information and misinformation being uploaded every single day, it's hard to know what to pay attention to, let alone keep up. Because of this, some have turned to a less traditional medium of spreading and getting their information. The video game industry is a growing market, one whose influence and content is ever-changing and evolving with the world around it. With coronavirus being such a large part of our lives in the past year, it's no surprise that gaming developers are creating COVID-19-related video games. However, these games are not just for entertainment. They're also created to help educate players on COVID-19 safety procedures and spread accurate information in an engaging and straightforward way. Eleni Thomas has the story. This past year, the news has been filled with stories and research on how to minimise the impact of COVID-19, how to stay safe and keep those around you safe as well. What is eventuated is a never-ending cycle of information from health experts and officials. 
political debates about how to handle the virus and what measures should and shouldn't be put in place. All this information can be daunting for listeners and viewers, and at times hard to understand. LabX, a creative engagement program at the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C., thought that a great way to get information out about COVID in an accessible way to everyone was through the medium of video games. Rick Thomas, an Associate Program Officer for LabX, discusses how this desire to combine COVID-19 information and video games led to the creation of the Jamming the Curve project. So we came up with the idea of Jamming the Curve, which was a a two-month game jam. And uh, if anyone's not int- or not familiar with what a game jam is, I like to think of it as a, a hackathon where you bring all these people together and they have uh, a set amount of time to work together and, and produce some product. And in this case, they were all games related to, to COVID-19 in some capacity. And for LabX, this project was also the first time the organization had worked on something related to COVID-19. The National Academy of Sciences does a lot of great work. They were doing a lot of work around COVID and a lot of it was making sure the information was clear and, and best recommendations were coming forward. But up until this past fall, LabX had never done anything uh, related to COVID. So we really wanted to help the academies further their mission and reach our audience as well. The aim of Jamming the Curve was simple, to create games that were both fun to play and could be used to educate the public about the pandemic the world was facing. What followed was a legion of people who came together to create video games that were all about fighting COVID-19. Public health experts, scientists and game creators had all come together to be involved in Jamming the Curve. By the end of the project, Jamming the Curve had produced over 50 COVID-19 safety-related games. For Rick and the team at LabX, this level of success was one that even surprised them. Yeah, so admittedly, uh, I had very few expectations. We had never run a game jam before, so I didn't know what scale we were looking at. But I remember the the day we launched the, the kickoff for the jam, it was September of 2020. We had, I think, 450 people sign up for the jam right when it started. One such game that was created for the jam is the game Cat Colony Crisis. Cat Colony Crisis was developed by Devil Cider Games, a newly established Canadian gaming development team created in 2018. Paul Boyko, one of the four co-owners of Devil Cider Games, discusses the concept and creation of Cat Colony Crisis. So Cat Colony Crisis is a 2D top-down virus management game. Uh, So basically you're playing as an overseer of a spaceship of spacefaring cats. So the cats are traveling from their origin planet to to Yarn Earth. Uh, during this time, a pandemic takes place. And uh, so you have to do your best to try and control that pandemic on the spaceship. So you have tools such as testing, contact tracing, you can implement a mask mandate. Also, you can isolate the sick cats. This game also had a big focus on using scientific knowledge to combat the virus. So basically the the whole idea was to use pro-science, pro-social concepts to try and reinforce positive behaviour in in the real world in in a COVID-19 pandemic. And with misinformation surrounding COVID-19 such a big issue, the Jamming the Curve project made sure the developers were given the resources needed to ensure their games were spreading the right information. Uh, So... 
there was actual individuals who were professionals in, in the healthcare field and in, in virology, uh, people from who work at the CDC, they were available uh, on the Game Jam's Discord server uh, where you could drop a, drop a question or, or ask for help. Devil Sided Games not only made a great game about combating COVID-19, they also did it with the expectation they wouldn't be making any money off of it. We made it as a decision for ourselves was that we weren't going to make any money off of, of a cat colony crisis. We, we weren't selling it. We want as many people as possible to play this game and to experience it and, and to get the message out. Projects such as Jamming the Curve showcase just how effective the video game medium can be. How the distribution of COVID-19 information, when delivered in the form of a side-scrolling, button-mashing video game, can be a great way to share this knowledge in a user-friendly way. That was Eleni Thomas with the story. In part one of today's episode, we looked at how different families have been affected by the pandemic, and in part two, the impact of the information provided by the Australian government and media. If you want to reach us, feel free to leave a voice message on 9018-5005 or contact us on our Twitter at cover underscore podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the topics discussed today. Undercover is brought to you by RMIT Journalism. Thank you to our reporters, Molly McGuinness, Nick Whiting, Chloe Kairis, Zara Ahmad, Yusuf Saudi, Riley Barber, Claudia Forsberg and Eleni Thomas. This episode was produced by Damon Rouston and Chisa Hasegawa. And a special thanks to our executive producers, Tito Amio, Chanak Rogers and Zoe Daniel. I'm Matt Parnell, and we'll see you next week for episode 8.